Before I um, get to the actual sermon, I mentioned earlier that uh, I was sick this week, which means I was at home a couple of days and not in the office. And I took books home and tried to do study and get ready for my sermon uh, while at home. But when you're A, not feeling good, and B, sitting on your couch, a, a lot of times uh, study for sermon ends up nap with book on your chest. Uh, so I was behind this week, and Thursday I came in to... Uh, to work and I was trying to write my sermon and the construction crew was here putting up the new drywall in the kitchen uh, that got destroyed, replacing what got destroyed in the uh, the uh, great flood. And um, let's put it this way. They had music playing and one of them thought he was talented in singing. It sounded, and I am not exaggerating, it sounded like I would imagine a cat being strangled sounded. And it went on and on and on and on. And there was three guys pounding uh, with hammers. So that's the element I was writing my sermon in this week. So um, if it doesn't make a bit of sense, that's why, okay? All right. Thou shall not steal. Everyone knows this. It's one of the big no-nos, right? It's number eight on the all-time greatest hits of things God commanded for his people. The first four were things to do as far as honoring God goes. The last six were things that had to do with honoring the others around you who were made in the image of God. It's a big thing. A lot of people today are trying to poo-poo uh, stealing. And it's, it's not really that all important. Hey, it's just stuff, right? Are you going to place people or stuff over people? Some folks want to make this not really even a crime. But God thought it was pretty important to not be stealing from other people, and he made some fairly heavy punishments for it. What a person has, what a person owns, is, generally speaking, what they have worked for with their time and their effort, taking it from them. When you go and steal something from someone, you're not just taking something they have. You are stealing time and effort from their life. They have put in their life, everything about their life, into obtaining that, and you have taken it. You may as well have stolen a certain amount of hours from their life when you do that. It's pretty important. So the question comes, what is stealing anyway? What do you mean, preacher? Any two-year-old knows what stealing is. That's when you take something from somebody else that doesn't belong to you. Well, yes. 
But oddly enough, it's not usually all that simple, especially in our complicated society. I mean, it can be that simple, but there's a lot of nuance to it. Most of you know that when I was in college, I worked at uh, what was at the time the largest Meyer store in existence up in Lansing, Michigan. I worked there as loss prevention, store detective. And while I was out there trying to catch people doing what you see on the front of your bulletin, and a lot more, there were elements to that crime that had to be satisfied before I could make an apprehension. You can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, I think you're stealing. There were a number of elements, and, and, and they had a, a whole string of them to, to meet the laws that were required there for that. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but two of them, the most important two are that you had to take something that was held for sale, and number two, you had to have the intent to deprive the store of its ownership of that item. Now, sometimes that could be satisfied in, in fairly simple ways. And you would think that somebody just coming into the store, taking something off the shelf and putting it in their pocket, hey, everything's all satisfied, right? Usually, maybe. Now, we, we waited until they were going out the door to make sure that, that we had checked all the boxes. But what if their intent wasn't to deprive? I have seen people who, in my opinion, I thought they were pretty dumb because they're drawing a lot of bad attention to themselves. That's how they shop. They don't pick up one of the little baskets. They go in and they just start picking up little things and they start filling all their pockets with them. And then they go up to the checkout line and boom, 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 out it all comes. And I've wasted, you know, an hour and a half following them around while they're shopping. However, Usually on like the first week of school, there was a high school about two blocks from our store, and uh, we got greedy because we knew what was coming. Lunchtime at the school, and all the little ninth graders who didn't know any better would come over to the store so they could pocket some cigarettes or whatever. And we'd just be sitting there waiting for them, you know, back in the back in the racks of clothing, like cheetahs in the in the long grass, just kind of waiting. So they'd come up, they'd come up, and you know you've got them. However, what if the intent of the person putting them in the pocket isn't to steal? This situation had happened a lot. You get a family comes into the store, okay? They're walking through. Dad, usually, kind of steps over while people aren't looking. He's at the, remember they used to have cigarettes out at spin racks where everybody could just get at them. He steps over there, grabs a couple packs, whoop, in his pocket. Then they shop, they get $150 worth of stuff because it's the 90s. And they go through the checkout line, and dad's kind of hanging back. And as mom and the kids go out through the checkout line and they head away, he steps up, whoop, cigarettes come out onto the thing, and he pays for them. Why? Because his intent at hiding the cigarettes wasn't to steal. His intent was to deceive his wife, whom he told two weeks ago that he was quitting smoking. 
So we had to make sure, there's, there's a lot of nuance in it. What is stealing and when is it not stealing? Something as simple as shoplifting can be a fairly complex issue. But yes, stealing usually boils down to taking something which doesn't belong to you. What did God mean about the entire aspect of stealing? Well, that's surprisingly complex also. Yes, God did make the very, very clear statement about the idea of taking what doesn't belong to you. In the Ten Commandments, which he repeats. And he made a statement about that, namely that it's wrong. It is sin. You don't do it. Most people know this without complex explanations. Frankly, we don't even need for God to have written it down in Scripture for us to know that stealing is wrong. It is the law which is written on our hearts, something that we know is wrong innately. It's referred to in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, meaning the written law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, for their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What does that term mean, law written on our hearts? Well, it means that no one has to tell you that a certain action is wrong. You will know it anyway. In this case, stealing. How does a person know without seeing it written down someplace that stealing is wrong? Well, that's really simple. You don't want people stealing from you. If somebody takes your stuff, you feel wronged. Therefore, you know that when you are taking stuff from somebody else that doesn't belong to you, you are doing wrong. It is the law that God has written on our hearts. But God did write it down. The law was written down for the people of God so that they would know without question that something was inextricably wrong. There would be no excuse. You couldn't be going around going, well, what had happened was I just didn't know. So stealing equals bad, right? Okay, end of discussion, sermon's over, you can all go home. <laughs> In your dreams. The Ten Commandments were bare minimum starting points. They were not the fullness of what God expected of the behavior of his people, one to the other. That's why there are so much more written down in the other passages, which helps them and us to comprehend what it is that God wants for us. He wants good things for you and I, and especially in how we interact with each other and how we interact with him. For instance, God makes this 
clear in how he takes into account the motives of a person's heart. The intentions that they have when they're doing something. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four oxen or four sheep for a sheep. You steal something. You're out there as a thief. That's what you're doing. You get caught. There's a punishment. You don't just give back the thing you stole. There's a punishment involved. It's a punitive judgment placed on someone who's just an outright thief. They're stealing intentionally, probably premeditated theft for the motive of pocketing the value of our neighbor's property. Compare this to what we see just a few verses later in verse 4. It says, If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. There's still a punitive aspect. Paying back twice what you took. But it's obviously less. God put in place that there were differing punishments varying on what your intentions were and what the the malady in your heart was. And get this. This even applies to just if you find somebody's sheep or ox or donkey or whatnot, and you're like, you know what? This thing's out here grazing in my field. I don't know where it came from. Looks like my neighbor's, but how do I know if it's my neighbor's? I think I'll just keep it. I'll take it and put it in my barn. Because, hey, it just wandered over here, right? I didn't go and take it from him. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Fail to do this, and guess what? You're still considered to have stolen it. Take it home, and you pay double. There's no finders keepers in the Bible. And I want you to note something. This even applies to, it says up there, your enemy's stuff. You find your enemy's stuff, you know it's theirs, you bring it back to them. God was serious about not stealing from other people. You don't take what someone else has a right to. Keep your hands off. Taking other people's stuff is inherently wrong. And beyond that, you cannot have a society that functions. If people are just taking things that they don't have a right to, society can't function that way. However, there are some subtleties that go beyond this. To the very boundaries of what we might in our minds conceive of as stealing. In fact, Many would say that the term doesn't even apply. But I think maybe it does. Let's dive into the deep end of the pool here and go a little bit beyond the the kindergarten thing of don't take what's not yours. 
We're going to take a look at a passage that expounds considerably on those minimums of thou shalt not steal. And we're going to look at the context that it sits in. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 13. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Is it only stealing if you place your hands on someone's things and take them without their permission? Isn't deception to get money just the same? Let me bring up a situation that many of you have probably been in in your lifetime. For me, it was when I was a very young adult. You've been saving up your pennies. You want to get that car. You've, you've been looking around. You've been shopping around. You're thinking about what you want. And you finally found that used car that you really want. You look at the window price. But you're no fool. You know that's just a starting place for negotiation. So you are talking with the salesman at the used car lot. And after 10 minutes or so, you've got them negotiated down 15% from what it says written across the front window. And you're feeling pretty good about it, right? I mean, that's, that, that makes you feel good when you go in there and you say, okay, I see you're asking $2,000. i will give you $1,700 for it. And you, you finagle and, and you get them down to the $1,700. Then, you go and sit down to draw up the paperwork. They fill it all out, and they turn it around, and they slide it over to you. And you're shocked and amazed when you look down, and that price that's listed as what you owe them is 15% higher than what the asking price was. And you're like, say, what? Well, he quickly explains, as though you should already know this if you weren't so simple, there's a processing fee of $50. There's a cleaning fee of $100. You don't want to buy a dirty car, do you? And the paperwork fee of $200. Not to mention tax, title, and license that we have to file for you for a fee of $25. Then there's a fee for checking your credit for $50. It's all just standard stuff. Every car lot does it. You have to go through this. Anybody who has ever sat in that cheap metal and plastic chair next to the used car salesman's desk, knows that they got ripped off when they get to that point. Don't you? I mean, have you been there? 
You arranged a price. And that ain't the price you're paying. Because they had all kinds of extras. They knew they were going to throw in on you. Is it stealing? Well, not in the eyes of the law, maybe. But did they deceive you when they were negotiating the price, knowing they were going to get a whole lot more money out of you? And if you thought you'd been dealt falsely with then, you just wait until you get that car home and you've had it and you're driving it for a month. And you find out that when they said, I swear to the Lord in heaven, this was owned by a little old lady who only drove it to church on Sundays. And a month later, everything starts breaking on it because them swearing to the Lord was as worthless as what they negotiated the price was. When people lie and cheat, especially if they swear to God that it's the truth, it's the same as breaking into your house and taking it. Society based on deceit also cannot function. A society can't function if there's just constant theft going on. Society can't function if nobody can trust anybody because everyone's trying to deceive everybody else to get a buck. Now, in our main passage there, everyone probably understands the part about oppressing someone and robbing them. You go up and you strong arm rob, rob somebody, that's wrong. It's just as wrong as breaking into their house and taking it when they're not aware. But let's look at the part about the hired worker, shall we? Day laborers were just that. They worked day by day. And they expected to be paid day by day. They needed it just then and not later. If you wait until tomorrow to pay them, what have you robbed them of? People would say, well, I gave them their money. What did I rob them of? Well, you robbed them and probably their family of last night's dinner because they didn't have the money to go and buy it when you should have given them the money after they had put in the, the work to earn it. They earned it. They worked for it then, you should have paid for it then. To oppress the poor for a small benefit for yourself is no less stealing and a sin than sneaking into a home and taking it. I worked for, I'm not going to name the employer, I don't want to get sued. I worked for this employer, major business, tens of thousands of employees. And I went to work for them, a young person, and when they hired me in, they said, well, you're going to get the bare minimum hours for a part-time employee that the union allows, which is 16 hours a week. Oh, and by the way, we pay bi-weekly. Oh, and by the way, we pay a week after you finished your first work week. 
So by the time I got my first paycheck for putting in 32 hours of pay, I had been there going back and forth to work for three weeks. Now, after Uncle Sam got his part, which we won't even talk about that today, they deducted for my uniform, which I had to buy myself. Now they gave me a discount off of what I had to wear, but I had to buy it. They had withheld certain money for some other thing, and then I had to pay my union initiation fees out of my first paycheck. So after working for three weeks, and the paycheck I was getting was for 32 hours worth of work, going back and forth to work four days a week, two miles to work, couldn't afford gas, so I was walking, I got a check for $66 after working for three weeks. Now I ask you, what do you think that the Lord would think of practices like that? I'm going to give you a hint. I was missing meals because I had no money to buy groceries and I still had to show up for work the next day. What God has always desired of people is that they treat other people as though they are made in the image of God. Let's go back up to the part we jumped over. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a whole chunk we jumped over and I was saving it for last. Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Why is this here? This is charity, right? Why are we talking about it with stealing? Well, because it isn't really charity. It's something different. It isn't welfare as we would know it, because there isn't some ridiculously inefficient bureaucracy first taking it from one group of people and then another super inefficient bureaucracy giving it away to other people as they see fit. But it wasn't charity either. The poor of the community had a right to it. Wait, what? They had a right to the proceeds of someone else's property? Yes. Now, I want you to understand something. They didn't have a right to go up to the property owner after he had worked hard and hired people to work hard to harvest the, the grain and go up to him and say, hey, give me some of your grain. Didn't work that way. What they had a right to was the little bit left over in the edges. The uh, Jewish rabbis of the time decided that it was 160th of a field 
should be left. And they had a right to go out and work themselves to gather it. The people who had absolutely nothing. They worked and they received it. If the, if the owner gave them something, that would be charity. But the poor, as we read in the absolutely wonderful book of Ruth, if you haven't read Ruth lately, go read Ruth. It's a fantastic story. They had a right to go into the fields and reap the edges and the leftovers, the gleanings. They had to work for it, but they had a right to it. In fact, in the book of Ruth, it specifically points out that most of the landowners were doing wrong by not following this and allowing it to happen. And the fact that immediately after this past these two verses, it again commands us not to steal, is saying and this was in almost every single commentary that I read, that not allowing them to go in and glean was to steal it from them. How is this? Well, in today's parlance, where our society is far, far different than theirs, it would come under the idea that conservative hero economist Milton Friedman, have you ever heard that name? Milton Friedman. He's far-right conservative, and he's, he is absolutely staunchly against welfare state and things of that nature. He called this neighborhood effects. There are things in society that can't be set down as a bill for any one person or group of people. You can't say this person owes for that because it's a neighborhood effect that really affects everybody. There are good things that affect us from the neighborhood and bad things that affect us from the neighborhood. And if everyone benefits from the good ones, and everyone is negatively affected by the bad ones. They are the bill made out to society. And God understood this. Not only is it terrible for a person to be so reduced that they starve, it is terrible for a society to have that situation within it. It makes it worse for everybody. Think of any Charles Dickens story you've ever read or seen a movie made out of. The people who are just completely indigent and starving. And so the absolute poor have a God-given right to be able to exist. If even at the very lowest subsistence level. They weren't owed a handout unless they were, for instance, uh, a cripple or blind or lame in some way. Then God said, yes, you need to take care of them out of charity. But everyone had a right not to be disgraced in the eyes of his brothers as an image of God. And so those 
who were blessed by God had an obligation to leave a little leftovers for them. And not doing so, biblically, was considered to have stolen from them. Back to my Meyer days. After a while, I was working mostly morning shift. I had started in the afternoon when all the action is, you know, when, when all the crazy people come out at about 9 p.m. Then I got moved to mornings. Oh, man, our mornings as a store detective boring. There is nothing going on. But there's one thing that I found out happened quite a bit. It's back in the 90s. And I found out that it wasn't very uncommon to find, especially a little old lady, going to the pharmacy, get their prescription. And between the back of the store and the front of the store, prescription disappears, usually into a purse or a coat. And I remember one person specifically, I'm following her. She has no idea I'm there. She's probably 80. She's about that tall. She went from the pharmacy, went up and started grocery shopping, and she's getting the absolute cheapest food she could find. Meanwhile, there's a prescription in her purse that we're pretty sure there's been other ones. Follow them up to the front of the store. They don't pay for it because they can't. And we follow them out the door, very politely, and this was store policy, very politely we approach them, ask them to come back inside, we go to the office, we process them, we tell them, ma'am or sir, we can't have you just pocketing the prescriptions. Often of, there were hundreds of dollars. and store policy. We walk them to the door and we tell them, well, we can't reshelve this. You might as well have it. And watch them walk out. Because that's how the store had decided was the appropriate way to deal with a person who could not get the things they needed for life, both their medicine their food. And my friends, that is how a society needs to be. Just as you cannot function as a society where robbery is condemned, I mean, is not condemned and is acceptable, just as you cannot have a society that functions where everyone is deceiving each other so that they can make a buck, you can't have a functional society where people are left to die for lack of opportunity to get the very basics needed to survive. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the words that you've given us, the wisdom that is enshrined in your word to help us not just as individuals, but as a people who desire to please you. 
Help us live our lives daily that way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have not accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I would invite you to do so today. If you're not sure all of what that entails, you could just talk with me afterwards or one of the elders if you choose. Or if you've been thinking about it and you have not been immersed into Christ and you are making that decision today, I invite you to come forward as we stand and sing and the praise team leads us. Please stand.